Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. That in order to meet this moment, we have to recognize our California comeback. I think in my time, this is a very unusual and a very unique time. What I'm saying about the state today, it's an enterprising, modernizing, pluralizing, unionizing nation state. Welcome back to the California Nation podcast. My guest today is Mike Madrid. He's a longtime Republican consultant and operative who's well known in both Sacramento and California politics, and now national politics as well. In the 2020 election, uh, Madrid was part of the Lincoln Project, a well-known group of Republicans who opposed Donald Trump and spent millions of dollars to run powerful ads against him and help Democrats win. I'm your host, Gil Duran, the Sacramento Bee's opinion editor. Thanks, Mike, for joining me. Thanks for having me, Gil. It's always a good conversation. We were scheduled to talk a little bit earlier today, but unfortunately there was an outbreak of sedition at the United States Capitol. And it was sort of uh, apropos because you are writing a, an op-ed for the Sunday Bee about the fact that even though Donald Trump has been defeated in the election, it's going to be a much harder and longer job to defeat Trumpism and what he represents. What do you mean by that? In your op-ed, you say defeating Donald Trump was the easy part. Defeating Trumpism will prove much more difficult. Yeah, so thanks. That's a good question. And again, it's an area of focus that I've spent for the better part of this year um, with the Lincoln Project, working to defeat Donald Trump. It became very apparent very early on. And I think a lot of people who've been following uh, this closely recognize that Donald Trump is really a symptom. He's not the underlying disease. And the problem that we face is really truly a social problem, one where I think the intersection of demographic change, ethnic, racial transformation, along with this uh, economy, which is increasingly benefiting highly skilled workers um, and leaving uh, less skilled workers further and further behind, have kind of met in this very explosive petri dish um, and created a social phenomenon where we are seeing rising populism on both sides, nationalism, uh, where kind of our own racial ethnic identities are increasingly becoming a definitive point of contention politically. And they're both adding to our inability to find common ground. And um, there is a wide and growing segment of the American population that um, has just frankly lost faith in American institutions, American expertise, lost faith in science and is choosing its own reality uh, as a way to explain some of this loss. And that essentially is, is Trumpism. Um, it's not exclusive to Donald Trump, 
but it is a dangerous, dangerous form of populism that really threatens democracy. And it's also not specific to just the United States or even the Western world. It's a truly global phenomenon. And I believe that here in the States, we will probably be battling it in, a, in whatever form it takes for the next at least two decades. When we use the word populism, can you explain to folks what you mean by that? I think people think they understand the word, but how does it differ from usual politics, in your opinion, where you try to appeal to the most people and get the most votes? So there's a lot of isms that are thrown out and have been thrown out that don't sound that bad. Nationalism, for example, or populism, they sound like, hey, these are good things. Populism is really defined uh, by two characteristics. The first is it lacks an ideological core. There's no ideological philosophy of what government should be in populism. It's simply kind of gathering as big of a band of people, the larger the size of the electorate, and having them advocate for any given interest. Uh, That any given interest is what defines the second characteristic, and it's usually an anti-establishment, often an uh, anti-class uh, battle that that it takes on. So it's kind of like we, it's, if people are keeping us down, there's a, there's always a blame inherent in populism, and it's often racially connected, which it is clearly in Donald Trump's case. But it's also kind of anti-establishment, which it is also clearly in Donald Trump's case. So Trumpism is very very um, definitive and characteristic of populism. Um, but again, the, the main thing about populism is that it's rooted in uh, a personality, not an ideology, not a set of governing beliefs. So the Republican Party, for example, at this moment in time, doesn't even have a national platform and people don't seem to care. Republicans don't seem to care um, because as long as Donald Trump says it's good for us, then people will follow that. And this cult of personality is very reflective of a populist movement. You wrote in your op-ed, which hasn't been published yet, which you submitted uh, a few days ago, a couple of weeks ago, actually, before the holiday began, yeah. uh, you say that the Republican Party today stands as the most immediate threat to our institutions. And mm-hmm. so here we are today on the eve of publishing this, and we see this scene unfolding at the Capitol, windows being smashed out, Trump supporters invading the United States Capitol, attempting to subvert a Democratic election. One woman was shot and killed. One woman who was reported as critically injured has now died. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you, as a, as a Republican, think when you see that scene unfolding at the at the Capitol? Well, I'm horrified first and foremost as an American. Uh, this is this is something that we have seen and watched in shock and awe in other you know parts of the developing world and kind of felt bad for people who had to live in governments like that. Here it is happening for the first time in our history, um, right, right here in our own capital. Um, as a Republican, I feel a certain uh, strong obligation to to be a vocal voice against it and to let people know that this is the threat is very real as you mentioned um i I wrote this piece long before the insurrection began before the violence began it's it's going to continue by the way this is as i like to characterize it the defeat of donald trump was the end of the beginning we are just starting into this process uh, violence will be characteristics of the characteristic of this political movement for the next two decades, and um, I, I, I feel a very strong obligation to speak out against it. Not because it has anything to do, and, and people will disagree with me on this, and that's okay, on the origins of the Republican Party or even its recent history. Populism has nothing to do with conservatism. And it's just as I mentioned, the, the the interchange between these two large social 
uh, dynamics, population and ethnic change, along with the economic separation we're witnessing, means this is going to happen on the left too. It's coming. This is we haven't seen it yet, but we will see it in very short order, probably in the next eighteen months. This same type of behavior emanating on the American left because it is a social problem. It is not a political problem. Are you still a Republican? I'm still a member of the Republican Party, although there is very little that um, keeps me there. Um, I'll be candid, it gives me a platform to articulate why I became a Republican, why I spent 30 years as a Republican consultative advisor, uh, because it also allows me to contrast with what the Republican Party is at this moment in time. If I were to simply leave, and a lot of people have left, um, I think it weakens the opposition to populism, it weakens the opposition to nationalism, and it weakens the potentiality of a return to true classical conservatism. So I remain a Republican to this day, yeah. And yet some critics would say that perhaps the seeds of the Republican Party's destruction by Donald Trump were there all along. You know, the, you know critics of the Republican Party, of which I, being a former Democrat, would say were there all along. The racism, the xenophobia, the sexism. In a way, didn't Donald Trump just sort of take advantage of a party that had long been inviting this kind of authoritarian creep. And do you think there is a difference between uh, the progressive ideology and the conservative ideology in terms of allowing for someone like a Trump who stokes as much hatred as Trump to become the leader of the party? One could say that it's hard for progressives to figure out who, who a leader might be or to agree on a leader, whereas the Republican base has fully gone all in on Donald Trump. Uh, I, I don't agree with that at all. Um, in fact, I would strongly push back on that. I think that some of the socialist creep that is eminent in our body politic today is very evident. And I think that there is a clear leader in that in Bernie Sanders. And I think that there are some very, very dangerous elements to the American left and, and socialist populism, which is not that difficult, different, by the way. It's not as xenophobic. It's not as race-based, but it is authoritarian anti-establishment and, and frankly, anti-fact as much as it is on the right. So, um, and like I said, thank goodness the Democratic Party you know, came to its senses and found a more moderate candidate, even though most polling showed that the party is moving strongly towards a, a more socialist creep than a more moderate democratic position. But that, that's, that will probably not last long, especially in a Biden administration. And I say this for a reason. I'm not trying to compare Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump and Trumpism is, as I write in the op-ed piece, the single most direct threat and assault on the American experiment at this, mo at this point in time. Uh, I do not believe that the end game of Reaganism or Eisenhower Republicanism or Arnold Schwarzenegger led to Donald Trump. I think that vastly underestimates and, and frankly shows a lack of understanding of the social change that is happening in our country at this point in time. And the evidence I would point to that again is it's not particular to the American right. It's frankly, it's very pernicious and it's very pronounced on the American left. And in fact, I thought actually in the 2016 primary, we would see it um, actually um, be stronger on the American left when Bernie Sanders almost beat Hillary Clinton. That's my point. The left can't really, if the left wanted to be an authoritarian party, it's not clear they could get it together to actually do that. Whereas we know the Republicans are a little bit at organizing behind a behind a leader, but I don't, maybe you're right. Maybe this will come to pass. Well, well, become well, more... the, the, the Democrats now control all levels of government. 
And so, you know, now that it's, look, both parties are more defined by what they're against than what they're for. So it's easy to get Joe Biden nominated and elected by a party that doesn't really reflect his views or rather he doesn't reflect their views when the number one goal stated in virtually every public opinion poll was defeating Donald Trump. They were looking for a moderate, not because they were moderate, but because he stood the best chance of beating Trump. Now, once you control all levers of government, the same way Donald Trump did in 2016, you're going to start seeing a very different Democratic Party emanate. It's not like these people are just going to start saying, oh, okay, let's follow Joe Biden in a place where the base is not. The base is not just reflective of a political movement. The base, the Democratic base, the American left, is reflective of this same social phenomenon that is affecting the American right. So it's only a matter of time. Donald Trump uh, delayed that, um, but, but that delay probably ends on January 20th. I tend to think that uh, w w the biggest danger, I think, from the American left is that they will make the next right-wing Trump more possible by making it mm -hmm. impossible for Democrats to be in the mold of Joe Biden, to pursue more of a consensus agenda. And so by, by breaking off from the Democratic base, the, the left will probably make an authoritarian right-winger more possible. That tends to, in my mind, be the bigger danger. We see that happening to some degree on the local level. Nothing that any Democrat, any progressive Democrat can do is good enough if it involves allowing people to continue to own property or, or work within yeah. the existing framework of capitalism. And while some on the left are ready for those conversations or, or a revolution against the existing uh, order of things, most Americans, it seems, are not actually open to that conversation. So you're saying something very important, uh, and it actually gets to the question of this rising populism and Trumpism. I, I would say that what you just articulated is exactly the same personification, the same characteristics of what's happening on the American right. And what it means is there is this continual movement to the extremes, this flattening of this kind of right-left spectrum. And my argument, my thesis is actually that there is no right-left spectrum anymore, the way you and I have known it in our adult life and our careers. The right-left spectrum is actually tilted on its axis to a top-down. There are people at the top who are the haves economically. They tend to have college educations. They have, they're upwardly mobile economically. They do quite well. But there's a growing part of have-nots largely black and brown people. And California is, is, is the particularly important personification of this dynamic. California is a fine place to live if you're white and have a college degree. You, you're doing probably okay. Maybe not great, but you're doing okay. If you're neither white nor college educated, you're not doing well, <laughs> okay? Most Californians are now saying in public opinion polling, California is not a great place to be, right? And this has been coming for some time. So if you took this idea of a right-left spectrum, where the debate in our lifetime deal has always been between whether government should be bigger or smaller, essentially, right, between Republicans and Democrats, and shifted it on its head to start saying people are against big government on the right, but they're against big corporations, big plastic, big oil, big banks, big pharma, big whatever on the left, they're still against big, which means that is a very clear characteristic of populism. And so as long as we start to continue to define these elements, these populist elements as on the right-left spectrum, we're gonna keep going to the extremes and we're probably not gonna be able to solve the social problem that we're witnessing when it's really a top-down problem, not a right-left problem. How has it been for you personally to be a Republican heretic who's been so prominent in the Lincoln Project? 
Have you faced personal consequences, lost friends? Oh yeah, just today I was uh, uh, threatened, uh, physically threatened this morning. Somebody threatened to kind of come and, and uh, teach me a lesson, you know, physically assault me. Um, you know, I, I'm not far from the capital. So um, there was a lot of this stuff that goes on become increasingly a re more recognizable figure and I have to be careful with those things. But um, yeah, I have, you know, just recently reconciled with actually the man who was godfather of my son. We had a very difficult, um, when, when I got involved with the Lincoln Project a year ago, we stopped talking for a year and just on New Year's Eve actually, uh, I started working on kind of a reconciliation. So yeah, I've lost very close personal friends. I have received numerous death and physical threats, uh, attacks on, on all sorts of you know, my business, my name, my reputation. Um, no, it has not been easy, but um, I don't regret it because it, when you back down to bullies and Trumpism is about being a bully, I mean, candidly, um, he's empowered a lot of this, this bullying. Um, they just, they just get, get more license. You have to draw the line. You have to say enough. And unfortunately, there aren't enough people standing up to it at this point in time. But I think more and more people are in saying enough. If the Republican Party does remain in the grips of Trumpism, what do you think is the future for conservatives in American politics? Do they join the Democratic Party and try to pull it to the right? Do they form an independent party? What happens to people like you, like people who are moderate or classically conservative, if this mm -hmm. Trumpism continues to control the party? That's a great question because it is important to draw the distinction that classical conservatives like myself and the Republicans and Republicanism are not the same thing at all. They're not even close anymore. So populism and nationalism and Republicanism are essentially the same thing. Imagine it, look at it like this. It's like the national front in France, which is very ethnically driven, very nationalist and focused, very opposed to anybody who is not purely French from a cultural and racial perspective. That's really what the Republican Party is going to become. And what has happened to the Republican Party in California is a preview of coming attractions to what will happen to the Republican Party in the rest of the country. That's literally, imagine 2020 being like 1994 with Prop 187. We've begun that process and the demographic change is going to come. And there will be a, a marginalization of, of the American right uh, in the same way that we have seen it in California. What that means for people like uh, me are uh, probably not unlike what happened to people like me in California 20 years ago, which is you can still articulate a vision on certain issues and have some influence on both sides of the aisle. But in terms of a formal party structure, you're essentially homeless. And I don't know that that's a bad thing, candidly. I think, frankly, maybe I'm just used to it, but it's very liberating. And I think as long as you're articulating issues and talking about the political system in a, in a productive way, you get an audience with the leadership of both parties. I'm very good friends with most of the Democratic leadership in this state. I've obviously worked against some of them as well. And the same thing with the Republicans is those Republicans whose opinion I value and those who seek out my opinion, I have a regular audience with. And I think that that's probably a better way for the system to work than simply being a partisan warrior because I'm at a point in my life where partisanship really doesn't have much value to me. I'd much rather focus on addressing some of the policy issues in the state and the country. Final question. You say in your piece, defeating Trumpism will require us to love our country more than we hate each other. What do you mean by that? And are you an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to that actually being possible? Our politics is defined much more by tribalism, as I mentioned, than ideology. 
And I think that when Schwarzenegger was elected governor, there was this kind of talk about being in a post-ideological era because he was kind of this moderate who could work with Democrats. I think that in some ways that was accurate, but the reasoning why uh, was not correct. What we were talking about was a post-ideological era because the ability to work across party lines was possible. I think that proves to be a failure for Governor Schwarzenegger. I believe we are in a post-ideological era now because ideology is now taking a second seat to these issues of identity. And it's important to understand that the Republican Party is the largest practitioner of identity politics in America today. It's just white identity. It's the politics of white grievance and white politics. And when you look at it that way and understand that the ability to work in a cross-ethnic coalition is extremely limited for the Republican Party. And I say this fully acknowledging that he did one or two points better with the Hispanic electorate and with the African-American electorate, but he's still losing these constituencies by a 70-30 margin or a 90-10 margin, just overwhelming support uh, for the Democratic candidate, regardless of who it is, for the growing electorate that is of color. So I think the opportunity to work together between Republicans and Democrats is extremely limited because it's also correlates to class, which is dividing and separating very quickly, and also race, which is also balkanizing and changing very quickly. So I'm, I'm not optimistic about the potential for the Republican Party. I'm marginally optimistic uh, for conservative ideas as the Democratic Party, especially people of color, start to look at economic concerns that have not been addressed and probably could be with people like myself uh, working more and more with Democrats and less and less in a partisan silo. As an American, uh, let me phrase it this way, and we'll end with this, sorry for the long answer, but I believe that there is a segment of the America dream that is dying. There is a, there is a, a the white non-college educated American for the first time in our history believes that the future of their children will be far worse than it is for them. And they are socially acting out on that through violence, through militia activity, through insurrection now. Um, but we were also witnessing an emerging America, especially with the Latino electorate, which are overwhelmingly very optimistic, poor but optimistic, still very hopeful, and still that receptacle for the American dream that we have known for 250 years. We are simply at an inflection point in 2020 between a very um, large and dying and pessimistic America and a small but growing, rapidly growing optimistic emergent America and the clash of those two dynamics is what explains this moment in time that we're in. Mike Madrid, thanks for joining us today at California Nation.